Within the depths of the strip mall of the damned lies a decrepit video store, long since shuttered. Past the dusty shelves, empty save for spiders, spinning their patient webs, beyond the ancient bat-wing doors guarding the sepulchre, where once were hidden the perverse and heretical, a secret society assembles to scrutinize those films which are rumored to drive viewers to madness and dissolution. Draw closer, dear listener. Let your trembling ears sup upon the eldritch knowledge of the Cinemania Society. We, the brethren of the Lens, pound to convene to judge this offering of cinema worthy of our esteem. To be cast down as worthless hokum. Let us all as in judgment. The story so far. The shout. is a 1978 psychosexual story within a story in which charismatic asylum inmate Charles Crossley, played by Alan Bates, tells a story to visiting author Robert Graves, played by Tim Curry, while the two of them are scoring a jolly old nuthouse cricket game. Crossley says his story's true, but he tells Graves he changes details however he wants. Not to worry, he says the more he changes it, the more true it is. Crossley's story is about his ensorcelment of married couple Anthony and Rachel Fielding, played by John Hurt and Susanna York, respectively, via magic he learned from Australian Aborigines after living with them 18 years and killing his own infants. Chief among the magical powers he claims is the Terror Shout, which Crossley says can be used to kill instantly. After some initial mindfuckery and conversational judo, Crossley demonstrates this magical shout to Anthony, which terrorizes him into submission. Crossley then usurps Anthony's place in his home and seduces his wife via an enchantment on one of her shoe buckles. Anthony is forced out, but he gets the last laugh when he finds the stone containing Crossley's soul and smashes it into four pieces, as you do. This breaks Crossley's power and drives him mad, just as the police show up to drag him away to the Loonypin for murdering his children. Crossley wraps up the story he's telling Graves as an electrical storm strikes. The thunder drives all the inmates bugfuck. The chief doctor tries to force Crossley back to his room, but Crossley refuses and threatens to shout everyone dead. Graves dives out of the cricket scoring shack to safety just as Crossley shouts and or lightning simultaneously strikes. Crossley, the doctor, and another inmate are struck dead, but we're all left wondering just what killed them. The film closes on Rachel in a nurse uniform, removing her shoe buckle from Crossley's corpse. Now that we've heard the story of the movie, let's rejoin the conclave and hear the society pronounce its judgment. This film is one that I saw as a very young man on television back in, oh, it was a while ago. And I was young enough that I took <laughs> it as at face value. I didn't question the underlying themes that were going on, the problematic messages that were happening in there. I just took it for what it was. I believed everything I was told as being the literal truth of what I saw on screen. And for that reason, I really liked it. It influenced me in a big way. I later found out that's probably not a good idea. I lost at least <laughs> one promising lover by showing them this film and telling and it was awesome and they didn't <laughs> share that that appreciation this film has therefore wounded me sexually as well as in many other different ways but i still find myself drawn to it i can't help but be captivated by the charisma by the seduction of alan bates and what's going on in front of us that's what i have to say about it but to get a further view which Obviously, I feel will agree with everything I said. Let's turn to our brothers one at a time. And so, Brother Zachariah, what say you about this film? I hate it. This, uh -huh. one, this movie was so boring. Just, it drove me to almost, 
heroic levels to continue watching this film. If I was not watching it for our conclave, I would have turned it off before the cricket match. I, it was what eight? How many minutes before it even got to the story? I forget. But it was too long. It was rambling and incoherent. And I could not understand the dialogue for most of it until and until this conclave, I still was missing big pieces of what actually happened in the film. Okay, well, thank you for your wrong opinions, Brother Zachariah. Anytime. Uh, Brother Daniel, have you anything to add? Uh, yes. So um, I first saw this movie, I'm going way back to like yesterday. Um, that was the first time I saw this movie, and it does not age well. Uh, let's just put it that way. I get that it is intended to be a deep, mystical, psychosexual drama, but the uh, rampant misogyny of the uh, lack of agency of the woman in this classic trope of, well, any, any mysterious stranger blowing by has cast a spell on her, and she cannot help herself but fall into his arms as he fingers her buckle. Yeah, that was I, that was obviously intentional in this film. Um, things like that just uh, do not do not hold up to uh, let's say modern uh, modern perspectives on such things. Um, it is slow. Uh, I don't have quite Brother Zachariah's um, reaction to the slowness of the film. I always like stories within stories, um, but I think what we really saw is that there's a significant disconnect between what the dialogue of the film is trying to achieve, cutting to these nonsensical creative, capital C, choices, capital C, made by, I, I think I'm with brother uh, Ethan on this, probably by the artistic director, capital A, capital D, T, M, um, thinking, oh, it would be really significant to linger on this bottle of milk that was knocked over by the dog, or um, here's a peacock, here's another peacock, and yet here's another peacock. Here's an old man who has fallen over in his chair, seemingly dead. Oh, no, he's not dead. He's just getting back up by the madness tree. It just all of these really random choices, um, I think don't help the film in any way, shape or form. Uh, I already know how I am going to judge this film. However, uh, I, will, I will hold that uh, until such time. I, I will allow myself to have an open mind as we continue this dialogue. Yes, well, thank you for your open mind and many wrong thoughts, Brother Daniel. <laughs> uh, I was a, a, a young person when this film first influenced me. Let's turn to another young person. Brother Andre, have you yeah. anything to add to this discussion? I thought I was watching like a plot portion on the hub, you know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> I... Again, kind of the same thing I said for Wild Zero. It's just something you can kind of turn your brain off and just revel in the weirdness. And I've I warned you about making me Google your references before. You oh, no. Freak. <laughs> <laughs> um, one thing I definitely did kind of notice was, again, those lingering shots and those that certain type of symbolism that felt not forced, but just kind of there the impression that it gave me was like certain passages in a book like you know might talk about a certain object for extended periods of time to using more descriptive words and telling stories but obviously in uh film it's a little bit more difficult to convey that so that's kind of the 
the vibe I got from those particular moments. So you're saying that Jerzy Skolomowski directs films the way that George R.R. R. Martin writes books? Yeah. <laughs> In layman's terms. <laughs> so for me, I always think of this as the, uh, the Dickens syndrome. So um, mm. specifically, there's if anyone's been forced to read A Tale of Two Cities in, uh, in high school, right? Yeah, I so, that bullet. Oh, yeah. <laughs> like any of us read it by choice. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. So there's a whole, there's, so they run away to, um, to uh, England for a little while to escape the, uh, the French Revolution and getting their heads chopped off. And then they get to this house that they're just hiding out in. It's an old house. It's got lots of wonderful antiques. And in particular, there is a rocking chair. And then Dickens spends an entire chapter describing yep. the rocking chair. Yeah. Just yep, the yep, rocking yep. chair and just all the why? stories about it. As if it is symbolism there's... and not that he is getting paid by the word. Yeah, because all, <laughs> all we see then is just a 10-minute shot of that rocking chair slowly, slowly <laughs> trapping in. <laughs> All right, all right. I think we've had enough of the wrong opinions of Brother Andre, Brother Ethan. I know you're going to be with me on this. I know that you, of all the brothers, are going to support me on this. You, surely, you must feel that there's something good to be said about this movie. Please proceed to present your correct opinions to these peons. Yes, certainly, Brother Andy. Um, I do have to say, in all seriousness, actually, I really enjoyed this film. Um, I spent a lot of time thinking about it after, uh, and I went back and rewatched it. Um, I, I talked it up to a number of different people, you know, folks that I knew who would enjoy it. Um, it is dated. Uh, I mean, it's very late 70s. Everybody's dressed in it. I kept expecting James Burke to come out from behind the corner and talk to us about the connections um, that this... Uh, this particular device would have to something else or introduce uh, some reenactment. Um, but beyond that, like I thought it was deep. Um, I thought some of the artistic choices the director made were a little ham-handed, but I really liked all the performances. Um, uh, in particular, it, I, I thought that, um, it, I, because I also read the short story afterward, the one that was from which this was adapted. Um, and I wanna say that uh, I really feel like that both the film and the short story pull off a trope that gets attributed to H.P. Lovecraft. Um, and it kind of raised a question in my mind. I think um, both Graves and Skolomowski pull off the trope very elegantly. Um, and so much so that I'm tempted to consider that Graves pioneered this trope, which is of the unreliable narrator relating a fantastical story in an asylum after which he dies, uh, which is kind of like everybody attributes that to H.P. Lovecraft. But um, because the, the short story from which this film was adapted was published in the New Yorker, uh, when it when it first came out in 1924, I, I suspect that Lovecraft read it because he was a raving Anglophile, was influenced by it, and like so many other hack authors who wrote for the pulps, tried to copy it. But I don't know that for sure. It might be the other way around. Maybe Lovecraft influenced Graves. I'll leave that to someone more obsessive than I am to check publication dates, cross-reference content, and then leave us an angry blog post about why I'm absolutely wrong. I find um, it hard so, to believe uh, that there is anyone more obsessive than you, brother. No, no, no. I, I unfortunately have to to flex the in English degree. Uh, no. You can take you can take this at no. least back to Edgar Allan Poe and Mary Shelley Wollstonecraft. Um, the whole of the um, uh, Frankenstein or Meth uh, or Promethean story that she wrote is basically the same trope of. A uh, story within a story, and then the storyteller uh, being unreliable unre passes. The uh, 19th century epistolary you're referring to, of course. Yes, uh, sometimes it's epistolic, uh, sometimes not. Uh, 
Mary Shelley's is definitely Poe kind of goes back and forth. Um, so I think he can go back at least that far to some of the Gothic stuff that does the same thing. You know, not not a well actually, but just just to call out like this is a this mm. is an old old trope, and it's wonderful to see. This is actually the thing that where I disagree with Brother Zachariah. I love this sort of thing. Um, my issues had more to do with the, um, as you say, questionable art, art director choices in the cinematography. Well, I know old... Daniel. You a spot motherfucker. You right. <laughs> <laughs> I just want to point out that I feel like this is this film is a is an oft overlooked Lovecraftian film. It's really this hmm. film and this story both by my it's definition. It's definitely weird and it definitely hmm. stays with you. Even whether it's good or not, it's definitely odd. I will yeah, give you no, that. That was the thing. It 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 has it has a linger effect. Like it really, like it really stuck with me. It has this building sort of creeping tension and horror that kind of builds throughout the whole picture as you watch this guy psychologically dominate these people throughout the whole picture. And that's the thing really that sells it more than me and really how Alan Bates gives an absolutely commanding performance of a sociopathic narcissist. I mean, maybe he was one, I don't know, but, but like if you read the psychological profiles of these people and as somebody who, who has studied clinical psychology to a certain point. I mean, more so than I think the average person has. I mean, I did, did, did work in, in a, a psychology clinic for a couple of years. Now, I don't have a degree. I just want to say this straight out. I'm not a doctor. I'm not a therapist. I don't have a degree or a license to practice. I've just happened to be around a lot of psychology in practice and having and have had some academic study on it. But I can, you know, he, he effectively weaponizes his charisma in a way that allows him to ensnare people into believing his grandiose and absurd claims. Um, and thus, psychologically dominate them, get them under his power. Um, and you can see this throughout the picture. Like you, can, you can see this from the minute Graves meets Crossley, like gets him right under him, uses these hypnotic tones in his eyes in a very, very sort of mesmeric way. Um, in the story that he's telling later, you can see him make a conspicuous choice to drink water instead of wine. Like every time he's offered wine, he, he turns it down. And this can be seen as like gaslighting because, um, you know, basically like, the people who have invited him into their home and against whom he is weaponizing their politeness and manners, he can get them to doubt their own sanity because he's not drinking and they are. So therefore, why would this guy make up this bullshit story that he tells people? So from a, from a perspective of somebody who enjoys looking at and analyzing psychology and, and uh, pathological psychology, like this, this was fucking amazing. Like I really enjoyed studying that part of it. I want to point out something about the unreliable narrator, though. Um, I think that a lot of this can be like taken back to like Plato's writing of, you know, the kind of straw man argument. Since he is the unreliable narrator, that means he does choose whether the peep, his opponents in the story succumb to him or not. So yes, he is like making these moves and stuff, but how effective they are, he is telling us how effective he is. It's like when somebody, I don't know, somebody very charismatic starts telling you a story about how they're charismatic they are that they're able to do these things. <laughs> he's telling a story about how he's incredibly charismatic and then he messed it up and got arrested. Yeah, at the very end, but you know, it's at the at the end you kind of have to segue back into reality. He's actually telling a cautionary tale. Like he, it seems like that's what he's tying to. Like usually, that's what these are. It's like it's a cautionary tale of almost like either messing with powers that you shouldn't, or 
uh, disrespecting powers that you shouldn't, like disbelieving mm. in them. And it's not, it seems like he kind of wavers between one or the other. But I do agree with you, Brother Zachariah, that like for me, what undermined the esoteric nature of this, the mystical nature of this, besides just the extremely dated and, and racist uh, uh, approach to it, was the fact that it's an unreliable narrator. So like that undermines us being able to approach this as a, is it really magic? Is it not magic, right? Um, that, that aspect of it felt uh, very ham-handed. Well, I mean, that's, that's kind of goes to the point though, you know, is that yes, he is an unreliable narrator, but at the same time, like that's what makes it sort of meta is because the actor, Alan Bates, is playing this role in this particular way. And yes, it makes the audience have to continually remind themselves that, oh, this is a story being told by a lunatic in an asylum. But at the same time, his performance is so so good and so dominating that you get lost in the story and you're like oh fuck wait this isn't supposed this isn't real this is a story I i'm going to tell you five things three of which are lies and like oh fuck right yeah 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 so like he effectively trolls both his victims in screen and in the audience that's the yeah. thing that i found really phenomenal about this film I yeah guess, yeah yeah i guess the, that's the... where it falls apart for me because i never forgot it was a guy telling a story yeah, I guess, so where I'm at is that the the psychological manipulation, like that drama worked for me, from, but the the super potential supernatural elements for me really fell apart. Like, you know, why did he grab that figurine off the door? We have mm. no idea, you know, like all that sort of stuff just totally fell apart for me. Well, that's the supernatural elements are, are the thing that he uses to psychologically dominate people. I mean, that's that's kind of the point. If you get people to believe the big lie, then they're under your power. You know, so his whole thing, like at the end, you've got Tim Curry's character as Robert Graves, um, basically they're like, but you still have the shout, you still have the shout. And, but he's like, as he's getting all psyched up to begin shouting and, and, and Curry crawls out the window as the thing's being pushed away, you don't know whether or not the lightning strikes and blows it up or whether he kills people with the shout. There's, there's ambiguity, there's deliberate ambiguity there. You know, so like it leaves you as the audience member going, does this guy really have this mystical power? And it looks like he might, you know, like she had the buckle, she took off the end, or was this just a lightning strike? What the fuck is going on here? I, right, it's kind of right. up to me to determine. Which would think, have worked um, better if the shout at the sound, the, the audio of the shout and the audio of the lightning bolt hadn't been offset by about a second and a half. That's a good point. <laughs> that's what I mean. I mean they, like, they did what they the could with the, yeah. with the audio right, with the, of the day. Clearly. Right. Well, not just that, but with the like, what, five million pound budget or something stupidly low like that that they had? No, yeah, no, that they, wasn't they, low budget for the time, though. I want to point that out. If this was done oh, in yeah. American modern dollars, that'd be a 30 million dollar picture. So like yeah, but they, they, had to, they had to ship some Aboriginal guy to the Devonshire Dunes just for one shot of walking towards a camera, and that probably cost a lot in 1970s. Oh yeah, a lot more <laughs> than paying uh, paying the actors. <laughs> I mean, I, I assume they just. I think it. ambiguity is a big word here. I, this whole film is laden with ambiguity. Is it real? Sure. Is it not real? Is it a story just randomly told by a guy? Kaiser sozying his way through a conversation by looking at the people around him and making it up as he goes? Or is it an actual retelling of how someone had his soul split apart and became fundamentally unstable because of it? We don't know. And those questions are ones which ultimately won't go answered. We've now had everybody's opinion on what they think of the film. Each of you in your own way have betrayed me uniquely. Your, your opinions have been daggers in my heart. I want you to know each sharper than the last and cutting more deeper than ever. But 
I will forever love this film, regardless of your wrong opinions. Now, however, we have to move on to the subject of judging. Is this film worthy of being elevated into being permitted to public view, or is it cinemaniac and must be condemned forever? I must have a vote from each of you. I will go to you one by one. Brother Zachariah, is this film innocent or guilty? Is this the real world or is this just fantasy? I don't care because it's guilty. Very well. Brother Daniel, is this film innocent or guilty? I believe this film is not intentionally guilty, except that it was infiltrated by a very guilty artistic director, and therefore it is guilty. Very well. Brother Andre, my youngest brother, one most closest to my heart. Oh. Is this film innocent or guilty? 100% guilty. <laughs> yeah, we'll have words later, you Gen Z tit. <laughs> and Brother Ethan, is this film innocent or guilty? I do have to say, Brother Andy, that I am tempted to exonerate this film and allow it to be weighed down by the four votes, uh, for the four opposing <laughs> votes. However... Uh, because of all the looks that you were giving me, and I suspect that uh, you'll be having words with me in the parking lot if I vote opposite my belief, I will be forced to say that it is guilty. And as for my vote, actually, I do have to vote it guilty because this film gave me cinemania itself. <laughs> this film hit me as a young man and filled me with crazy ideas that I didn't know how to question and wasn't able to properly process because of my youth and immaturity. This film probably influenced me in a way that it shouldn't have done. And is that not what we're here to try to prevent and save people from? Yes, I'm afraid I must judge this film, love it though I do, as being guilty of cinemania. Well said. Brethren, <laughs> I will ask oh, you yeah. to, to remain a few moments longer after we will not uh, deconvene this conclave immediately. I have a guest. Ah, but your guest is going to have to wait. I can sense cinemania in this room, lingering up the walls like ooh, impressionistic German filmmaking. We must go to recess. That episode of the Cinemania Society featured Andy Slack, Ethan Ireland, Zachariah Burks, Daniel Scribner, Andre Luke Martinez, and special guest, The Trash Shaman. Produced, mixed, and mastered by Ethan Ireland. Graphic design by Andy Slack. Music by Carl Casey at White Bat Audio. Visit our website at thecinemaniasociety.podbean.com and check out our social media feeds. We're on Twitter at TCS underscore Cinemania. And if you like what you heard, please rate and review wherever you found us. Mention us on social media or find us on Ko-fi to throw us a few bones. We love to make fun stuff for folks, but it isn't free. Anything and everything helps. Coming soon, the Cinemania Society will be creating pieces of video media, short films and the like, so stay tuned, Cinemaniacs. The Cinemania Society is a production of the Cinemania Society, LLC.